Good morning. I'm going to be in Proverbs 24 this morning. We'll be looking at Proverbs 24, 1 through 22. And I know everybody just got set down, but in honor of God's word, if you would stand with me. Proverbs 24, verse 1. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous, do not do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and not and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly for them, from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, as a covenant body in your church. We thank you for the opportunity to um, sing of your praises. Lord, we thank you for the little ones that were here this morning to just brighten our hearts. We thank you for those that were willing to spend the week with them, to present the gospel to them. Lord, we pray, Lord, for your word as it goes forth. And we pray for Pastor Friels as he brings that word. We pray that it would be like honey, that we would taste and see that it is good. We would long for more of it. We thank you for the Sabbath, knowing that we needed it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You never get a chance to make a another chance to make a good first impression is what it's been said. And remember when I met my wife, uh, I was pastoring a church, I was single, and uh, a single pastor. 
and uh, found out, had talked with her a week or so earlier on the phone, and she was looking for a church, and she said she was 29 looking for a church where there were some adults their age, and I said, well, I'm 30, and I didn't know what she looked like, but hey, you know, I was single, I was looking, you know, and she walked in that next Wednesday night, and I, I remembered, hey, that must be that young lady I talked to on the phone. You know, we had about seven people, so I, I knew who it was, you know. And so uh, she had told me on the phone she was interested in church that did missions and evangelism. So I, I know I went downstairs to the office and I got everything I could on missions and evangelism, all this literature, and brought it out and set it out so she would see it that night on her way out. Because I wanted to make a good first impression because I wanted her to think highly of me. I wasn't so sure, certain about Christ-centered in my thinking, I'll be honest with you, uh, as I should have been but I want her to think highly of me. And this week during Vacation Bible School, uh, in contrast, we wanted our children to think highly of the Lord Jesus Christ to make a good first impression on them about Jesus. Some of them have heard about Jesus all their lives already and maybe some have heard these stories about Jesus for the first time. And so we're so thankful for the, uh, the time that uh, so many of our volunteers spent this week in uh, helping our children uh, be impressed with who Christ is. The uh, feeding of the 5,000 mentioned in this passage of Scripture I'm going to look at this morning. Maybe some heard it for the first time. Or Jesus walking on water. But I want to ask you to take your Bible again. And I'm going to ask you to stand again. And uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And if you would turn there, there should be a Bible underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. I'm going to read this chapter. And I'm going to preach this word. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Matthew chapter 14. And I'll begin reading at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they told him, they, they held him to be a prophet, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Verse nine, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said to them, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to him, walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got to the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought him to all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace given to us that we could hear this word read just now and that we could meet in this place and sing these songs about the gospel. Lord, thank you that we have been able to be in classes this morning and be taught about Jesus. Father, I pray now that you would do this miraculous work in our heart that takes Jesus from being someone we're familiar with to someone that we follow, even if it means that we die following him. Father, renew affections in our hearts for you so that our faith is firm and steadfast and seen to be real and authentic by others. Help us, Lord, to see the Jesus we worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. So I mentioned the importance of good first impressions and how our Vacation Bible School workers have sought to do that and this past week and done a good job doing so. Now, it needs to be clarified that we want to give correct first impressions of who Jesus is if it's a first impression for someone. I was in a class this week, I think it was in the kindergarten class, and, and uh, one of the teachers was saying that they had tried to illustrate the resurrection from Jesus from the tomb, and they'd used some marshmallows and so forth, and, and uh, they, they, they asked them what happened to Jesus in the tomb, and they said he melted because I think the marshmallows must have melted. So we want, and the, and the teacher spoke up and clarified later, no, Jesus didn't melt, he actually rose from the tomb. And then another teacher told me this week uh, that they asked the students a question. They said, uh, who, who baptized Jesus? And one of them said, Steve. <laughs> well, I was somewhat flattered by that, but I'm glad the teacher was very intentional to go back and correct them to say, no, Pastor Steve didn't baptize Jesus. And in fact, it was John the Baptist. The reason our teachers correct them, the reason our teachers spent five consecutive nights this week teaching these children about Jesus, the reason we're here this morning is we want them, we want us, we want all to believe the truth about the Jesus that we worship. Now notice I said the truth 
about the Jesus we worship because there's a lot of non-truths, a lot of false things. We're in Bosnia. We heard about the Mormons in Bosnia teaching that Jesus is some type of created being. And, and then the Muslims have a Muslim Jesus. They believe in Jesus. My friend Almir talked to me one day and said, yes, we believe in Jesus. He's, he's a, he's, we have Muhammad and then there's Jesus and one day Jesus is coming back to, to destroy the earth. And he said, see? And I said, no, well, I need to clarify with you the truth about Jesus is he's not second in line to Muhammad. He is coming to judge the earth, but he's also the savior of the world. Because we want people to know the truth about the Jesus we worship. So there's a lot of different Jesuses out there that you're going to be exposed to and hear about. But there's one Lord Jesus Christ that will affect our hearts so much that we would turn away from being king of our own life and begin to follow him and to put him first and seek to live in a way that pleases him because he is the one that we worship. The Jesus we worship is not just a familiar man. If you look back in, in uh, this passage of scripture, you actually look in chapter 13 that Brother Tim Johnson preached from a couple weeks ago, you'd find Jesus at his hometown. And when he was at his hometown, how did his hometown receive him? His hometown did not welcome him. His hometown saw him come and he tell in the synagogues and they said, how did this guy, how did this, how did this whippersnapper who we saw growing up, we saw him when he was little. We didn't hear such wisdom when he was little. We didn't see any miracles when he was little. How, how come we're seeing it now? They took offense at the things he said and that he was saying they did. He didn't do many miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief. They saw Jesus as just another man. Maybe a good man, but just a man. The Jesus we worship is not just a man. He's more than a familiar. He is a man. He's the God man. But he's more than a familiar man since he is the God man. What these people believed in his hometown about Jesus led them to flatly reject Jesus. Then we come in Matthew chapter 14, the first part of it, we see this interaction with Herod. That old, that old uh, fornicating, uh, uh, pervert, murderer, leader of, uh, of, of, the, of the people there in that area of the world. And, and what does he say? If you look at your Bible in verse 1, he says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This Jesus, this is what he believed about Jesus. This Jesus, this is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. That's what he believed about Jesus when he heard about his fame. But this Jesus is more than just a man. This Jesus is more than just a famous prophet. A lot of people say, like my friend Almir in, in, uh, in Bosnia, as a faithful Muslim, he would say, Jesus is a famous prophet, a great prophet, one of the mightiest prophets ever, but he's more than just a prophet. And so Herod didn't change at all in his ways, what he had done to John the Baptist, so the passage goes on to explain here is that John the Baptist had died because John the Baptist believed in the Jesus we worship. When Jesus arrived on the scene, what did John the Baptist say? He said, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, but I must decrease. Why would someone humble themselves who had such a uh, successful ministry in many ways out there in the middle of the desert eating, eating grasshopper sandwiches and dressing like a crazy man but people still came out to hear him preach because he was convinced of the Jesus we worship. But as he continued to preach that gospel message even after Jesus had come it got him in trouble one day because Herod 
was sleeping with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist called it out and said, y'all not be doing that. It's wrong and it's sin. Well, Herod, just like a lot of us, we don't like people pointing out our wrongs, do we? We like people puffing us up and telling us good things about ourselves. But put the finger on where it's hurting and put your finger in there a little bit and poke at that little wound a little bit and you're going to get a little backlash. Well, it cost John the Baptist getting thrown in prison. And Herod's mistress, his brother's wife, didn't like it a bit either. So one night Herod's having a little party and his niece comes out and dances before him. And he gets to looking at her. He begins to let his mind go wild as he watches his own niece. And he begins to Say, promise, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. So she runs to her mama and says, Mama, did you hear that? What should I ask for? Give me the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And Herod, who wanted John the Baptist dead anyway, but was afraid of the people because he's a people pleaser too, he did it. And here comes John the Baptist's head. You just see his head sitting on that platter. And what I'm here to tell you is later on when John, when Herod heard about Jesus doing these miracles and his fame, there in verse 1, if you look at your Bible, reached, reached Herod. What Herod believed about, John, about Jesus, that this Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead, what he believed about Jesus made no more impact on him than when John the Baptist pointed his bony Baptist finger right in Herod's face and said, Repent. Herod when John the Baptist did that, what did Herod do? He kept right on sinning and had Herod throw, had John the Baptist thrown in prison and kept right on being the king of his life. And when Herod heard the truth about who Jesus is, about the fame of who Jesus is, it made no difference to him because he concluded about Jesus, this is a Jesus that's a great prophet. This is a Jesus that is like John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Well, that's a wonderful thing to say about Jesus, but it's not enough. That's not the Jesus we worship. He's more than just a man. He's more than just a famous prophet. He is the Jesus we worship. And he, if he's just a man, you're going to flatly reject him. If you just think he's just a great prophet, you're going to keep on plunging in your sin on a highway to hell, your default destination as a human being anyway, and you're not going to change if you're not convinced that he is more than just a famous prophet, that he's not the Son of God. And this seems to be the contrast that's being set up in part as we look at the big picture of Matthew chapter 14. A lot could be said about these individual stories, but as we look at the big picture, what Matthew's doing is he's inspired to arrange these stories this way and write this way about these stories by the Holy Spirit. It seems his intent is to provide a contrast from those who are saying these things about Jesus and those who are encountering the truth about who Jesus is and how they respond to him. What we see in the big picture in the rest of Matthew chapter 14 is this. Is what we believe about Jesus affects how we worship Jesus. You've seen it already. The hometown folks flatly reject him because what they believe about him doesn't do anything for them. Herod keeps on in his sinful ways because what he believes about Jesus doesn't go beyond him being a famous prophet. What we believe about Jesus affects how we worship Jesus. So two things quickly I'm going to say about that. Number one, the Jesus we worship, 
The Jesus we worship, that we've met here today, that we go to Bosnia and try to talk to people about, the Jesus we worship is the focus of the prophets. He's more than a prophet. He's the focus of the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies of the prophets. We see that all through the Gospel of Matthew. So we see the feeding of the 5,000 beginning in verse 13. He's out in a desolate place. And the crowds, he can't get away from the crowds. Perhaps he's going out there to pray as it tells us later he does withdraw by himself to pray in the passage of Scripture. But he goes to this desolate place not to hide after he hears about the, about the death of John the Baptist. Our Jesus is no coward. Our Jesus is bold. Not much later after this, Jesus is walking boldly into Jerusalem where he knows they're going to crucify him. And he's hanging on a cross. He could call 10,000 angels. Instead, he keeps hanging there because he is Lord. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And three days later, he'll rise again. No, he's not going out there to hide. He's going out there to pray and possibly to set up this opportunity for him to be even more public about his ministry. Because two times in this passage of Scripture, once in verse 13, if you look again in verse 15, the word desolate is used. You see that? Desolate. It seems that Jesus is going out to a desolate place. Later the disciples say this is a desolate place. It seems that Jesus could be going out there knowing he is God. He knows all things. He's setting up all things. He's the sovereign Lord. That he's going to this desolate place knowing the crowds will come there. Knowing they'll be hungry. Knowing they'll need food. And knowing they can't get it unless they go off to town. This is an opportunity for him to make it very clear. Once again, he's more than just a man. He's more than just a prophet. He's actually the focus of the prophets. Because what would happen? You, hopefully you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, this story, right? 5,000 men, not counting women and children on the hillside. He's been having compassion on them. He's not on some ego trip. He actually has compassion on the people, right? Because this is who our God is. If anyone should have an ego, it should, an ego, it should be God. He should be the one glorifying himself. That's what he's doing. But he's doing it in such a way that he magnifies himself by having compassion on us. That's who God is. And so that's what he does. He goes and he begins to have compassion on the crowds. He's healed. The day has gone long. The disciples say, look, these, these folks are hungry. We need to send them away to eat. He says, you give them something to eat. Bring me, bring me those loaves, those fishes that, he, that they tell him about. And he raises up his hands to the sky, and you know the story, hopefully. And he begins to bless it. And God does this miraculous miracle. And the 5,000 are fed. In fact, the Bible tells us that they are satisfied. Twelve basketfuls left over. Now, one of the things... I've not walked through each one of those verses, but one of the things I want you to notice there, if you, want to, if you were to go back today and look in verse 13 through 21 and read those verses a little bit, you, you're not going to notice the response of the people here. You're not going to notice it. You read John 6 when you go home. He's all about the response of the people and how they want to force them. They want to, they're so excited when they see Jesus feeding these people like that, they want to make him king by force, Right? Matthew doesn't record any of that. 5,000 people got fed. All right, 12 bags of full left over. Everybody goes home. <laughs> it's like just another day for them. Well, it wasn't because John tells us otherwise, right? The people responded in a magnificent way. Why does Matthew, listen, why does Matthew not record the response of amazement by the people? 
Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And his concern is to show primarily this Jewish audience who's very familiar with the prophecies about the Messiah, who will do things like Moses did and others. His concern is for them to make the connection through Jesus' miracles like feeding 5,000 that this is the one that we're looking for. His purpose here is when they read these verses to say 5,000 people got fed, that reminds us of how in the wilderness, Moses, through Moses, God fed the people 40 days. And the Bible says there'll be a prophet, a Messiah, who'll be like Jesus, greater, or be like Moses, greater than Moses. And so when these Jewish readers read this, their mind's supposed to go, boom! That's what we've been looking for. He did that. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. That's the King. That, so, so Matthew's not so concerned about all the emotional response, the fleeting response of the people that want to make him king by force. He's making the point here. His emphasis is here. Jesus is the focus of the prophets. Here's another evidence where Jesus is doing just what we would expect him to be doing. One of the things that uh, I would encourage you parents, if you don't have this, this is a big picture story Bible. I've got two of them. And if you don't have one, I'm going to give you one if you, before you leave today. You know, and if I've got other people want one, I'll give you one too. We'll just make, try to get it to you. And the reason I'm so passionate about that is the children's storybook Bible uh, is just like it says, going through many of the major stories in the Bible in this big picture story Bible, I'm talking about this children's Bible, the whole intent is to help us see how all those stories are not just little individual separated stories. Jesus feeds 5,000, so Jesus will take care of my needs too. Is that the main point? It's a good point. It's a good thing that he's gonna take care of my needs. That's a good application. But it's not the main point. The main point is this is the Jesus who's greater than Moses. There's another evidence that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ. And so the big picture story Bible and its narrative, the way it carries out, is showing us that all these individual stories are not just little separated things about how God can do this for you and God can do that for you. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? And a lot of times that's true, but it's all to show us it's all about Jesus. It's one book, 66 books, but one book with one message all about Christ. And most people who even know about the Bible, have, have never, those connections have never been made. The, the, the author here of Matthew understands that the Jewish people have this kind of background in their minds and his prayer and his aim through the Holy Spirit is they would make these connections. Ah, yes! I mean, have you read your Bible have you read your Bible and begin to make connections in your walk with the Lord and see, oh, that's why that prophecy's there in Jeremiah. That's why that story's there about David and Goliath. It's more than what I thought. And you begin to see it's all about Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. So this is a, a tool I would encourage you to, to use that would be helpful. Or just do devotions with your kids. Just read the Bible. But one of the reasons I mention that is this. I'm seeking to make a point of application. I'm seeking to make it quickly because I know the hour's getting late, but... One of the students in Bosnia that we met a couple years ago, his name is Lubasha. Uh, now I remember Nick brought Lubasha to me like he brought a lot of people to me when he went with us that summer. And so I talk to Lubasha, who is also Orthodox. 
Most people there are Muslim, but we've met a lot of Orthodox and Catholics as well. And, and uh, Lubeshah talked with a while. I said, Lubeshah, he says, yes, I'm Orthodox. I said, Lubeshah, have you ever read the Bible? Well, not really. I said, Lubeshah, you, you, you're proud to be a Serbian, which means Orthodox there. If you're from Serbia, your family is. But you've never read the book of your people. You've never read the Bible yourself. So I challenged him. And so last summer when we went back, I met with Lubeshah. He didn't come to school, but I had lunch. I uh, met with him at a mall one day last summer. And I uh, said, Lubeshah, you been reading the Bible? He said, I read Genesis 1 through 3. And I started laughing. <laughs> I just laughed at him. I said, Lubeshah, you've had a whole year. You just read three chapters. I mean, I should have been more encouraging, right? I said, that's good, man, but you could have done better than that. You know, I gave him a hard time. Went back this summer. He's almost to the end of 2 Kings. And as we talked about a lot of things, he liked to talk about politics and culture. I just listened to him. He began to talk about the Bible. At, some, at one point, in fact, we talked about the Bible for an hour and a half. At one point he said, Steve, I'm very surprised. I was just waiting. You've been very nice today. I was just waiting for you to ask me about the Bible, but you never did. But I just let him talk. It was oozing out of him. And he's been reading the Old Testament and he's beginning to make connections. It was just a beautiful thing. He's beginning to see all these stories are not just this story here and this story's there for moral purposes and all this, which you can make those applications like I said, but it's all about one big story about the Messiah to come. And he's seeing that. He's still not a believer yet. I'm convinced he's not, but he's beginning to see. So point of application here about the Jesus we worship as the focus of the prophets. Dads, your responsibility is to help your kids see that. Husbands, your responsibility is to lead your wives in seeing that. And you say, well, I'm not married. I'm a single mom. Your responsibility is to be in the Word. Help others see that as well. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a satisfying thing to begin to see Jesus in the Scripture and the Word come alive to you. Yesterday was my birthday, and my wife took me to Evansville for my birthday, and I'd heard of this orange leaf place before, but I ain't never been there. She said, well, we could go there for dessert. She said, but it's yogurt, and I don't like yogurt. She said, but it's frozen yogurt. And I said, well, I trust you. We'll give it a try. Yogurt, though, I don't like yogurt. You know, if I'm going to have some calories, I want it to go for something. And man, I went over to Orange Leaf and got me these different flavors and stuff and put these toppings on it. And I was like, yes! This is, this is great. I mean, I can still taste the orange-flavored one. You go there and get the orange flavor. I can still taste it right now. It had a self-authenticating effect upon me. I mean, you could describe how good it is, but once you go and you get it for yourself, it begins to authenticate itself. It, it is good. That's much more greater way. That's how the Bible is. You begin to read it. You begin to see these connections, how it all points to Christ, that Jesus is the focus of the prophets. I can try to convince you that this is the Bible. I can give you all these different proofs about how many Greek manuscripts are out there compared to Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and all that kind of stuff and, and it make your head spin. And, but I, cannot, I can never convince anybody that this Bible is the Word of God. I can't convince you. But you begin to read it. It has a self-authenticating effect. And as Matt was praying this morning and sharing in Scripture, you begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, that it's sweeter than honey. 
So what I want to say to you this morning, the, the people in, in the, in the, in the, here in the Gospel of Matthew, they had this background where they would, can make these connections. A lot of people don't. One of the best things you can do to help people know the truth about the Jesus we worship is to encourage them to read their Bible if they have one or give them one. Encourage people to read the Bible. So in Bosnia, we met some students and one, one day I felt led in the assembly time to just go ahead and say to them, I was very explicit with the gospel and uh, had to be kind of careful in those public settings, but I said to them, look, maybe, this is, maybe you don't agree with me as I shared the gospel of Jesus being the only way to heaven with all these folks. Maybe it's the first time you've heard this, but let me encourage you. Have you. I said to all of them, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? Why don't you just read the Bible yourself? Because I know about every single one of them in their hat. Why don't you read the Bible yourself? We've got a Bosnian translation I said here we can give to you. And then uh, there was one of my students, a, a young girl, Olympka, 18 years old, came up later and said, could I have one of those Bibles? I was like, yes, you could certainly have one. And so I saw her sister, Inna, that's 25, and I gave Inna one. And then to one of the guys in our class, Dolibor, who's in his late 20s, came up and said, I heard that Olympica got a Bible. Can I get one of those Bibles? I said, yes, you can have one of those Bibles. And so I'm praying Facebook is not always a good thing, but sometimes it's helpful to stay in touch with people that I've contacted Dolibor and said, hey, man, are you reading your Bible? And he's trying to get to it. And so... All I'm saying is we need to do that here, right? When you meet somebody, you're talking to them about problems in their life, about the gospel. Uh, as you share the gospel, and, and you, know, you need to be real careful about trying to get them to pray right then and ask Jesus in their heart. I mean, sometimes people are going to be ready. Most of the time it seems like they're not, but be ready to extend that. But what we need to do and just, and, is say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you read the Bible? Or even say, could we read the Bible together? Can we meet together and just study the Bible together and see what happens? Because God's Word's powerful. All right, lastly, the Jesus we worship is the focus of the prophets. The Jesus we worship, secondly and lastly, is the Son of God. And no less, He is the Son of God. Here Jesus is. He's praying by Himself. The disciples have gone away. He sent them across the lake. And Jesus says... Look at them boys out there. Ain't they pitiful? In the fourth watch of the night, possibly been praying three hours, there's a storm going. The wind, the waves are beating against the boat, it says here. Beginning in verse 22 and on down to verse 24. In the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, he comes walking on the sea. What are the disciples? Are they expecting this? Who is the Jesus they've been following up to this point? Well, they're not expecting it. They say it's a ghost. And Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter, who's all the time sticking his foot in his mouth, gets it right and says, there's an old song I heard, boys, that ain't no ghost. That's my Jesus. Peter jumps up out of the boat and says, can I come? Yep. He walks on the water. Well, you know, we know he sinks, but he did walk on the water too. Started sinking when he started doubting. That just reminds us how the disciples were and how we are, up and down in our faith. And to the extent that we, how strong our faith is in Jesus is how fervently we're going to worship him and follow him. So he begins to sink and cries out, Lord, save me. And the Lord saves him. He's right there with him and saves him. 
And I think the main thing we're supposed to see probably in this whole chapter is the response. You know, there wasn't a response of the crowd of 5,000, right? Not recorded by Matthew. But look in your Bible with me. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Verse 33, listen. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What we believe about Jesus affects how we worship Him. Now what you're going to see about the disciples, if you keep reading through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, is you're going to see disciples up and down, just like them waves, just like Peter, sinking and back up, sinking and back up, just like we are a lot of times. That's the reason it's important to be in church where we're being reminded of the truth about the Jesus that we worship. But here they are in this boat, Worshiping Jesus. And they're saying, He's the Son of God. I, I don't know that they still grasp the fullness and the reality of that. And it reminds us that as believers, a lot of us are in different places in our sanctification and becoming more like Christ and our understanding of what He's done for us. But we need to keep following in Him anyway. John chapter 6 tells us about the feeding of the 5,000. It says here at the end of these verses of this chapter, chapter 14, that they go to this place, Gennesaret, and they jump out of the boat. Jesus keeps on healing people. They touch the fringe of his garment, and Jesus keeps on healing them. And the disciples are right there with him. They keep following Jesus. In John chapter 6, it tells us when they got to the other side of the lake that the people who wanted to make him king by force came following him, and they said, Jesus had just did a miracle, just, healed five, just uh, fed 5,000 people, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, do a sign like Moses did. Moses gave us, you just gave us food one day. Moses gave us food every day for 40 years. They get up in the morning, there was manna on the ground. It means, what is it? They said, what is it? Somebody took a bite, don't know who took a bite first. They said, what is it? Tastes good. God gave them bread from heaven for 40 years every day. Moses gave us bread from heaven. Do, do something like Moses did. Jesus says, first of all, Moses didn't do it. God did it through Moses. And secondly, he said to him, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate that bread in the wilderness. And eventually they died. But whoever eats me is going to live forever. You can get sustained on physical bread like I sustained you across the lake, he says, or as Moses did but if you want to be sustained spiritually, you need to be nourished on me. And you know what happened? It was too much for them. That's not the Jesus they believed in. And the Bible says many of his disciples, many of them who wanted to make him king by force, they didn't follow him any longer. They went away. You see, the Jesus we worship, the, what, what we believe about Jesus affects the Jesus we worship. And what they believed, he's a great prophet, but they didn't believe he was a king. So they weren't willing to follow him, weren't willing to worship him. And so that's the extent to which they went with Jesus. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said to him, will you also go away? And Peter spoke up again in John chapter 6. And he said, the Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And notice I've got that word believed underlined. Why is it he's not going to go away? Because what he believes about Jesus is that Jesus is more than a prophet. 
He's more than just a man. He is the Holy One of God who has the words of life. I asked my kids this week, we were doing devotions one time, I asked them about something we were studying, I said to them, now do you believe that? Why do you, I said, why do you believe this? And one of my older boys spoke up and said, because you do. And I said, son, you need to believe this because you do, not because dad does. What I believe is not going to sustain you one day when the winds are blowing and things get rough. Do you believe this? That's what me and mom prays for you. Do you believe this? And that's what I want to ask you. Do you believe these things? Who is the Jesus that you worship and follow? And will you follow him until you die? Last thing I'll share with you before we have the Lord's Supper, before we extend a time of invitation as well, is John and Betty Stam were missionaries in China that believed in the Jesus we worship. They were in their early 20s. This was in the early 20th century when this took place, and perhaps you've heard of them. In the early 20s with a very young infant baby girl, they were arrested by the Chinese army. They were marched off. And as they were paraded through town in their underwear, humiliated in front of the townspeople, one person came out who was a nominal believer at best, a Chinese businessman of a small shop actually, who was a secret believer who had a Bible hidden. And he came out to defend John and Betty Stam because they were taking them to execute them. And when they went into his home and they, he spoke up for them, they went into his home, they made him march with them because they found a Bible and they took him to execute them. Somebody else spoke up for them and they took out swords and they hacked them to pieces. So here's John and Betty Stam who had taken their baby daughter by now and hid her somewhere hoping somebody would find her here in their early 20s. Then they got to the place of execution and Betty Stam, the wife, the young wife, has John's socks on because he doesn't want her feet to be bloodied and so they've walked this place, humiliated along the way and as they get to the place, they force John Stam down upon his knees and the flash of his sword, his head hits the ground. He's dead. And as soon as he dies, his wife falls to the ground and she just begins to shudder and tremble. And the same knife that took her husband's head off takes her head off. You know why? Because they believed in the Jesus we worship. Now let me tell you something. You may say to yourself, let me get this straight. So if I believe in the Jesus they worship, we worship, then just like John the Baptist or just like John and Betty Stam, my head could get cut off. Is that what you're telling me, preacher? Yes! But that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you is to go right on to judgment without Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And head cut off at 20 years old or live until your ripe old age in your late 90s without Jesus that's the worst thing that happened to you because the same Jesus that walked on that lake that night he walked to Calvary he took our place on the cross and died as a substitute for our sins and you know something there's over 2 billion people in the world never heard what I just told you over 2 billion now, I want to ask you something who is the Jesus that you know? 
I'm quite sure that probably you've heard of Jesus before you walked into this room. But are you following Jesus? Are you a worshiper of Jesus? Is He your Lord and your King? I pray that He is. <laughs> I pray that He is, and that you'll become a follower of Jesus, and we would love to talk with you about what He has done for you in, in relation to your sins upon the cross. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, and I hope you see that as well. Let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you for this grace that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts and show us where we stand before you and how we can be right with you through faith in Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing this song of response, and we'll not sing it for a long time, but... Uh, we're just going to ask you to stand, and as we sing, if you'd like to come and pray, or I can chat with you, talk with you about maybe how the Lord's at work in your heart, you do that. As we stand, you stand and sing. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. 
After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.